0: Jen Marr spent five years in crisis response, working with communities and individuals that experienced great tragedies. During this time, a realization dawned on her. Very few people are skilled in comforting others. She founded Inspiring Comfort, an organization dedicated to cultivating human care and connection by establishing comfort as a teachable skill. Founded on the belief that today's isolated, socially disconnected, and a hurting world causes more harm than good Inspiring Comfort encourages us to do a better job of caring for one another. Jen and Inspiring Comfort have helped thousands build a caring and connective world. She's the author of the book, Pause to Comfort, and she's worked in the mental health organizations that advocate comfort skill programming, such as National Suicide Lifeline, Georgetown University, Northeastern University, the New York Law Office of Mental Health, and the American Association of Suicidology. Jen, welcome to the One Away Show
1: hi brian thank you so much
0: thank you for being here uh it's been such a wonderful experience following your journey for the last few years and and seeing it come to life uh so i'm excited to do this with you Uh, jen i'm curious uh you you have a fascinating story you know great career and and done a lot of things however i i want to know what you would say to your one-away moment and how you would share it with the audience today.
1: Well, thank you, Brian. And thank you also for your platform and what you're doing to elevate really great um, ideas and conversations out there. So I would say my one-away moment was a real pivotal moment in my life, which was when I was running the Boston Marathon in April of 2013 and was a half a mile away from the finish line when the bombs went off. The reason this was a really pivotal moment for me was I was running the race as kind of a way to heal Um, during this time. I don't know if you remember, but this was April of um, 2013. And in December of 2012 uh, was the Sandy Hook Elementary shooting. Uh, And I was helping in that school each week, bringing comfort dogs in and bringing comfort to the staff and students. And that was really quite a tough place to be. And so running and running this race was a way to heal from that and and process my thoughts as I was running. And I dedicated mile 26 to all of my new friends there, the staff and students. And I didn't even get to mile 26, I got to mile 25.8. And it was those 0.2 miles were the cruelest 0.2 miles that I didn't even get to mile 26. And um, I think basically, after that, I, I really believe I suffered from a little bit of PTSD, having dealt with so much trauma in such a short amount of time. Um, everything was a bit foggy to me. Mm. Um, I had a really hard time understanding how there could be so much evil in the world to be so involved in two mass terror issues and within four months of each other was really quite traumatic. And when the dust settled, I just was left with this feeling that there's so much more to be done to help this world. After that experience of Boston, I looked at every new crisis response that I would deploy to because, so Brian, I was working with the the Lutheran Church Charities canine dogs that were deployed to tragedies all over the country. I was dealing with them in the Connecticut and um, New York region. So it wasn't only Sandy Hook, I was going to crisis responses every month, um, sometimes weekly, um, deploying to suicides and car accidents. I had this deep dive into human suffering and being on the ground with people going through unimaginable tragedy and had this opportunity to observe how dogs were taking a role of caring for people. And there was nothing wrong with that, it was beautiful. Um, People respond so beautifully to the love of their pets and and dogs, it's for sure. But what I also noticed was humans were losing their way. We were becoming more awkward, didn't know what to say. I observed time and time again of people not knowing how to support the ones going through the toughest time. Mm -hmm. And so usually they did nothing. And this ultimately led me to founding the company Inspiring Comfort Mm -hmm. um, and understanding that we all have to know how to care for each other. And I got to the point where I loved being there with these beautiful golden retrievers. Um, But the saying that kept going through my mind at the time was, you give a man a fish, he'll eat for a day. (laughs) And it got to the point where I kind of just felt like I was bringing comfort and that was beautiful, but I didn't feel it was resiliency Hmm. and i felt if people could care for each other that's resilience so the step one is to offer comfort for sure but step two has to be to help people know how to connect and care for each other and that's what led me and i would say that um that point two missed miles in the boston marathon is what really opened my heart to that yeah
0: jen you you you're a part of as you notably said, two back-to-back of traumatic events. You, know, you saw the depths and the valleys of, I can humanity um, in back-to-back years uh, with Sandy Hook and then with the Boston Marathon. My question for you is, let's go back to Sandy Hook for a minute and when you were a part of that experience. You said, you know, teach a man to fish quote. Uh, it's one thing to, you know, bring the dogs and kind of help people through the experience, but it sounds like you learned a lot about yourself and maybe showing up for people and learning how to comfort people and, and that experience alone. And it sounds like you're, you've been a very empathetic and, and someone who can be comfort others throughout your whole life, but that experience, you know, those skills were very much required. Uh, what, how would, you know, what, what did you notice about yourself that allowed you to be able to comfort people in those times and really show up for people who are hurting and struggling? Maybe if you could take us back to, there, to that moment to kind of shed light on the pain and how you help people, um, then we can carry this forward. But I'd be really curious to start there.
1: Yeah, it's a good question. And I think we're all wired a little different. I obviously uh, was felt very privileged that I had the opportunity to help a community recover. I think it also helped me that I went in holding the leash of a beautiful golden retriever and it was I was not a trained counselor so I really was not there to talk. I was there just to be and to help. But through that process I learned that It is not about the conversations. It's not about always having the perfect thing to say. It's not about doing something perfect and on a large scale. It is the art of being present. It's the art of just being there over and over and over again. It's the recognition that when someone is hurting, they just wanna be seen. They don't want to be told what to do They don't want to be offered solutions. Sometimes they just need a hug. It's the understanding that someone going through an incredibly difficult time on one day might be smiling and very happy, and the next day will be incredibly sad. Four years later, they could have a day where they're as sad as they were a week after the tragedy. Traumatic situations, crisis, trauma, loss, and today stress, burnout, add them all to the list. They're all just this massive dump of cortisol into our system Um, is not any kind of a linear process. It is a messy process that people need others to walk with them through every day.
0: Absolutely. I love what you said about kind of standing with someone in that experience and not giving solutions and learning how to be present, uh, as you said, over and over and over again. Um, And just back to your Sandy Hook moments, you know, what did that that look like in action when you were there to comfort and, and help people navigate this traumatic event, you know? What were some of the things that maybe if you remember that that they said to you and and how did you respond how did you learn how to respond because you you kind of built you kind of built the model and i think for yourself i think it might be fair to say that to then go teach people how to do this and that was a really important time i think to to see this the skill really come to the forefront of your world so i'm just curious if there are any examples that stand out where you noticeably comforted someone through through this experience and traumatic event?
1: Well, it was, it was, it was a process, Brian. It was, I first showed up with the dog and I didn't know these people. I think if I were to boil it down to three things, I, I smiled big, I listened hard and I hugged tight. Um, it wasn't a lot of words. And at first it was maybe the dog that they were drawn to, but the great opportunity i had in those years was the fact that it did go on for 5 years for 5 years i was in that school every week and it shifted from them petting the dog to asking a question about me or my simple my simple way to show up was just again smile listen give a hug most people love hugs there are a few that didn't and then you don't give them a hug but very very few if any. Um, And then just ask the simple question, how's today? Mm. That's it. How's today? Um, And sometimes they didn't have time to talk. Sometimes they did. Sometimes we'd sit and chat. And it was the accumulation of those. You know, It's kind of like, it's very interesting. You've seen my book and I just had the amazing opportunity to collaborate with Sky Quinn from Time Magazine on it. And Sky said, Jen, when you do the book, make sure you have a really great picture or something on the back page of the the last page of the book, not the back cover, but the last inside page, because when sometimes people open it from the back. So what I decided to put on that critical page was marbles, marble jar, because I like to equate when you care for someone, it's like looking at a person that needs a jar filled with marbles. And every time you do an act of care, it doesn't matter if it's a text or a phone call or a hug or saying something to someone, you're putting a marble in their jar. So what I've what I learned f- from that as I work through that process is it's so many little things. It's so many check-ins. It's the building of that trust. It's the building of the, I'm here for you. I'm not gonna leave. Um, I'll be here for you every day. Um, If you ever need anything, let me know. And then doing that and being there. Uh, And so as I was there every week for five years, it was in incredibly stark contrast to 99% of the other crisis responses that I went to, which Mm -hmm. were for the most 72 hours, the most. Usually it was 24, 36 hours. You'd go in and then you'd leave these shattered students I had to go back to class with an empty chair in the classroom. Um, so it was the combination of living one out and then thinking what was going on and all those other ones that I wasn't at each week after. Does that make sense?
0: Makes so much sense. And I think it's a really important point in, the, in this whole discussion uh, because what you just said that really stands out is this wasn't a let me just come in for 72 hours, clean some things up and, and do the best I can and like move out. It was a very long-term process uh, is the marble analogy of let's build trust over time. This is a long-term process and a trauma that you know will never be forgotten. Uh, and so you need to be there for people through the long-term to help them through navigating that experience and let them know you're gonna be there for them consistently. Uh, and so I think that was what's really powerful that you were able to see that firsthand and also do it for such a long period of time. Uh, so you could really build the skill uh, for yourself and really understand what it takes. Um, so really, really interesting uh, to just hear how you how you were able to see it in such a visceral way.
1: Mm-hmm. And not only that, Brian, but see what was not working out there.
0: <laughs> right. You
1: know, when So as an example, in all these communities, I would see, programs that would come in to try to help rebuild a community. And a lot of times they would, their intentions were amazing and, and the programs are good, but they didn't result in connection. So let me give you a couple examples. So many schools I went to would be doing kindness programs and I don't mean to bash kindness programs so critical and good, but almost always they were random acts of kindness, um, which is by definition random and not a connection. Um, Or the other programs were very theory-based, focused on emotions, focused on things like empathy or compassion. And again, those are great. Um, Everyone needs to have empathy. And so I just started to clearly see that tangible skills of knowing how to care for each other are not happening out in our world today. Uh, My background, as you know, is in international business development. So my business development brain was taking over as I was watching this play out. And I knew there had to be another way. Um, And so that's when we just started testing programs in these trauma-based schools to bring the kids back together in these shorter-term deployments and help them care for others, learning this resilient skill of caring and comfort, um, and really starting to research it, build it out, and eventually founded this company.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, some of the things I've really gotten to respect about you is is how your your focus on making comfort something tangible opposed to, like you just said, empathy or compassion, uh, which could feel loose and maybe abstract. People know that they, they should be empathetic or compassionate, but what's that really mean? How is it applied and what's what's comfort? How is that the solution to it? So one, thank you for kind of describing the roots uh, of you know Sandy Hook and your involvement and kind of what you learned about comforting others in, in a long-term fashion and, and what's not right uh, with comfort, uh, or how to do that. So let's let's go to Sandy Hook to this one away moment. You're at mile are 25.8, is that right?
1: No, tw- yeah, 25.8, <laughs> exactly.
0: Okay. Oh, so you are you are on the uh, finishing edge of 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 you know something really remarkable, I and mean, it is very remarkable how far you got before it all kind of came to a halt. I'm sure. Take, take us to that moment uh, at, the, at the bombings. Uh, what was going through your mind? What uh, what happened? What was your first move? How did you make yourself safe? How did you help others through that experience? And just uh, take us to the scene.
1: Yeah, it was it's actually really quite crazy. Um, at 25.8 miles, all you're doing is just getting to the finish line. You are, your body is tired. I'm not a professional runner. I was running this for charity. Um, And so literally at 25.8, I was counting my steps. I knew exactly I had to get up the street, make a right turn, make another left turn and the finish line would be up there. So I literally was counting my steps. Um, And all of a sudden there was somebody standing in front of me with his arms up. And he said, the race is over. I said, what are you talking about? Like, and um, he said, there's bombs at the finish line. And I, 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 I had headphones in, I'm like, what? Um, people were screaming, um, I was running with my friend, Amy, who wanted to keep going. She's like, come on, Jen, we can finish this. And I had, um, I, I, weird background. I'd been involved in some other terrorist activities and when I lived in Europe. And so I knew that you did not walk towards it. You walked away from it. And I knew I needed to meet with my family. My family was there. Um, they had been at Heartbreak Hill. So I knew I needed to find our way back to the hotel. Um, but after running 25.8 miles, your body is tired. And, um, it was, it was chilly. And so as you stop running, um, you get chilled normally at the finish line, you get a blanket and you get food. And we now our adrenaline is even going harder. My phone is going blowing up with texts. My hands are shaking so hard. I can't even answer them. And my only thought was I need to get back to my family. Um, at the end of the day, I didn't turn my watch off, which was um, you know, keeping track of my miles. By the time I got back to the hotel, I think it was at um, 29.2 miles. That's how much we had to wander around the town, getting yelled at by policemen constantly, get out of here, get out of here, don't go here, don't go there. Um, so it was a pretty crazy scene. Um, and I, a very nice man, gave me his coat uh rich stamps from Oregon who I saw the next year when we were invited back to actually run and finish the race um and uh it was pretty remarkable it was yeah pretty intense after <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: wow i am sure extremely scary and you know kind of survival type of mode as you said like you your brain your adrenaline racing uh now I'm sure everyone there was scared and I'm sure it was a, a kind of horrific scene and uh, it required a, an enormous amount of comfort, right? Mm-hmm. To others around you, people outside the race. So I'm, I'm curious when, when you met up with your family, were, were, were you doing the one comforting them or were, you fi- or were they able to show up for you maybe in the way you would have wanted uh, given that you were just you on the tail end of this monumental moment, I'm just, as it relates to comfort, I'm just curious how, who is doing the comforting during this time when you are able to sync with those closest to you?
1: Well, it's really funny, Brian, because when you're in this moment and this happens, like when people are involved in traumatic events, they don't recognize themselves to be going through it. Hmm. Um, as far as I was concerned, I survived. I wasn't hurt. I met up with my family. I was okay. Who, here's an example of what worked my friend Dot, she when I finally got back and was looking at all my texts, she said, I'm gonna meet you at your house tomorrow. And so as I was calling back, I'm like, Dot, that's silly. Don't You don't need to take off work. And she says, Jen, I'm going to meet you at your house tomorrow. I'm not taking no for an answer. Um, so I drove back to Connecticut from Boston. She was living in New York and she met me at my house. And I, at that point, I had no idea why she was coming. I'm like, I'm fine. Um, but over the course of the next couple of days, she'd be like, Jen, I'm going to go to the grocery store and get some groceries for you. I'd be like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Thanks. Okay. You know, um, she's like, Jen, I'm going to drive Erica to gymnastics. Oh, yeah. It, it, it yeah, like, your mind doesn't work. And so there was someone who recognized that I was going to be going through a traumatic time. And I mean, she's a nurse practitioner. She's amazing, but she knew what to do, and she wouldn't take no for an answer. So she showed up. So that was kind of an example. It took me a while to decompress from what happened before I actually like was really upset about it because as far immediately after, it's just still adrenaline and shock. And no, I'm okay. I'm fine. I'm fine. I tell everybody I'm fine. Um, and it was probably in the know the weeks after that all of a sudden you're like oh my gosh and and that's ultimately i think why this is that one away moment where it just kind of unfolded didn't Mm -hmm. definitely unfold on that day of the race
0: got it got it makes so much sense and the, the delayed response and the trauma kind of coming into into effect uh i'm sure and i'm sure it was hard for you to like see yourself kind of in that moment i mean I respect how you operate in that very kind of forward-thinking, diligent manner. And then all of a sudden it sounds like you were kind of pulled back and you like you weren't your normal self and able to respond and, and then care, you know, and think about those around you uh, in the way that you knew how. So I can see why that was such a significant moment. Um, you, prior to that, a year prior, you know, you had spent time years Teaching people comfort and then you are the one who needed to be comforted uh, by those around you to kind of get through this trauma and you know not that you ever get through it but uh i'm curious so that happened you had these kind of back-to-back you know experiences what happened next because it sounds like you're not i mean it sounds like it i know there was a, a a formation and accumulation of these events that led to something really inspiring a movement that you've been able to, to kind of bring into the world as a business, but uh, I, I'm just, tell us about how these events have shaped you and shaped that trajectory and what happened from there.
1: Yeah, it's, it's everything I learned during these years, right? Like I said, it was five solid years and Boston happened in the first four months of these five solid years. Um, but really studying human care behaviors and being on the ground floor of observing them and recognizing that number one, our best, most significant relationships are usually formed through tough times, always. It is, I would watch time and time again as the only time I've seen groups of kids not be on their phone was when they were dealing with a crisis response, when they needed each other, when they just wanted to be with each other, when they were trying to make sense of what happened. Um, I recognized how people's hearts are open when they're struggling in a way they will never be open when life is happy. And I started to study this and figure out there has got to be a better way to teach tools and strategies to help people understand how to get to this point. How, if this is where we're forming our best relationships, because at the end of the day, comfort is not a cozy, pain-free word. In the noun form, it is. In the noun form, it's very cozy and a hot cocoa. In the verb form, it is to bring strength and hope. It is one of the most powerful, resilient verbs out there. But yet, it's overshadowed by this fuzzy word that we're all supposed to be um, have comfortable airline seats and um, cozy chairs. So, really starting to look at comfort as a teachable skill. Um, starting these after-school programs figuring out a process. Because at the end of the day, I recognize that you, when you comfort someone, you have a, an automatic connection. And not just a nice connection, not a nice just professional, hi, how are you? But no, I see you. I understand you're going through pain. I'm here for you. Mm-hmm. And when you can teach someone how to do that, it will cut through every single kind of barrier that's out there. I recognize that here we were in the middle of any situation, any situation you put yourself in, um, I don't care if it's political, racial, social, um, religious, you name it, everybody can disagree on all of those things and they can cause division. When you care for someone, when it cuts through to you just wanting to comfort someone, nothing else matters. It is the number one best uniting mechanism out there. Because when you really seek just to care for someone and listen to them, it's where the best of life is found.
0: I, I love how you're just speaking with uh, the, the passion like really reeks through and it's just, it comes out so naturally. I mean, it's, it's built into you at this point. And um, one, one question I, I have for you before we of talk about inspiring comfort, was there ever a point or time in your life where you struggled to to show up for others or or, or give comfort uh, to the closest people around you? And how did that impact your closest relationships? If you if that experience speaks to you.
1: Well, I think it was right after. It would have been in twenty thirteen after that that double trauma. Like it really was. Um, It was a lot, you know, it was showing up, but yet still processing what I was feeling myself. And it was honestly, probably one of the ways I learned the power of what I was doing, because I found that the way I got through it was the relationships of the people that I was actually helping. So what happened was the people I was helping at Sandy Hook, all of a sudden flipped it for me. Now, all of a sudden, it was not only me asking them how is, to, how is today, it's them now asking me back how is today. I learned that true resilience and fighting your way back has everything to do with the relationships that you have and how when you care for others, they're going to be there to care for you back. And so it was kind of just this organic process I went through that... Um, I found that I needed those relationships to get through. There's nothing I could have done on my own, nothing. And granted there was, I definitely, you know, went through some therapy as well, no doubt, but this is the thing. A therapist is there as a short-term relationship to give you some strategies. You need your tribe underneath you to get you through. Right. You you know, therapy is never going to in itself give you true resilience. You need to Through every day with a group of people around you who who love and care and support you.
0: Absolutely. No, I appreciate appreciate you sharing, and I appreciate you kind of giving color, right, to to that experience. And I think what you just talked about the the, the tribe and the support system, and making sure they know how to show up for you too, um, which is hard. And you're right, which is why what you're teaching is so important because it's not taught. It's not taught in school. It's not taught in families. It's it, can, it might be learned if you have a parent who really maybe shows you that, but um, I can see why what you're doing needs to be out there. And, and so let's, um, if you're comfortable with it, uh, I'd love to talk about inspiring comfort and how, how did these experiences blossom into the, the impetus for creating what you have, the book that you wrote, uh, take us there.
1: Yeah, well, the impetus was we had to move to Washington DC for my husband's job. And I had to decide whether we were going to make a company out of this, or if it was just still going to be something I kind of just did. um, to love people. (laughs) Um, Even though we had gone through a research study already. um, Back in 2017, um, I teamed up with two colleagues and we decided to make a go of the company and put into place the programming that we had, had a study done at Western Connecticut University on and really building out this process of comfort and how you can teach others to care for people. At the time it was mostly a youth program and we found that people wanted adult programming expanded um, and also a book And so that was when I got here in 2017, started a book, teamed up with Sky Quinn from Time Magazine on that. And she just did such a brilliant job designing it. Um, So it really laid the groundwork for a much broader program platform of how to teach the skill. Um, Started working really closely with Dr. David Desteno out of Northeastern University. Um, Other mental health organizations got very involved in um, different suicide prevention, um, education and work uh, and really started moving out to figure out how do you tackle this problem of caring for those that are struggling the most. Um, Learned very early on that we all have a part to play in this mental health epidemic. Um, And I knew that what we had started building out with something every, everybody needs. And so that's how it went. It went, start the company, had some do-it-yourself programs, write a book, um, put, expand the programming. Now we have assessments. Now we have a whole training platform to train the trainer in all sorts of different settings um, with the goal of giving people the tools and equipping them based on their own behaviors, we're all so different, we all have different behaviors, but based on your own behaviors, Brian, take this assessment, figure out what are your key strength behaviors, what are your barrier behaviors, um, and walk you through tools and strategies so that you never fall into the trap of not knowing what to say or do. You know, through all our programming, we ask always the question, especially surveying, we found that 75% of people will say they can recognize someone who's struggling, but only 15% of people feel equipped to know what to say and do. Think about that. 15%, 85% of people don't feel they have the tools to know what to say and do when someone's struggling. And there's zero reason for that because it's a behavior that can be changed. It's a it's a strategy that can be taught. And so that's why I'm so passionate about this because every time we go through a training, people's eyes are open and, and they walk out with the tools and strategies that, oh my goodness, I noticed on the phone call with this person, they're going through this. So I asked a couple extra questions and now that relationship's a little better. Now I'm gonna to continue to follow up with that person. Just simple strategies.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I, I, Jen, as you're talking, um, I can share after, but everything you're saying is, uh, I think it really speaks. Um, and the, the fact that 85% of people don't know what to to say, right? It just shows that there is a massive problem and solution potential to to really help increase, you know, something very scalable that can help the masses. Um, it's a global global effort here and, and problem that you're tapping into. Um, Tell, tell tell us a little bit more about you know you you have designed a, a product line I think with inspiring comfort that is really interesting where an organization uh, you know different individuals can can come and learn how to equip themselves like what talk to us a little bit about the product line that you've designed uh, if, if you're listening to this and you're like okay this would be good for my company or this would be good for my family uh, to tell, give us a little lens into how you built that, and uh, what you'll walk away with, kind of going through uh, the products on inspiring comfort.
1: Yeah, so we've built out a process that is really we call it our four steps to create a culture of comfort. You could say a culture of care. Um, the first step is really assessing um, that we have the ability to go in and do. Pre-surveys for a company, really trying to dive into how cared for do your employees feel. Um, when this data comes back, it's pretty eye-opening when you compare how cared for your employees feel at work compared to at home. Um, if you don't have a cared for workforce, you're not gonna, you're not gonna have a productive workforce, you're gonna have a lot more conflict. So diving into how cared for does my workforce look like is key. What have they been dealing with? Um, And then what we do as well as give the employees their individual assessments. So what happens from an organizational perspective is we give you this um, data back aggregated. The employees themselves will get their individual reports that show their own behavior strengths and weaknesses. It's their personal profile. comes with an action plan. But you as an organization will be like, okay, here are key barriers. Um, This is what we need to focus on. So that's the first step is assessing. The second step is informing. It's Really kind of, why do we need to know this skill? Uh, wh- what's happened in our world that only 15% of people know what to say and do when someone's struggling? Why is this and why are we investing the time in teaching you this skill? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's really critical. Uh, and the third is equipping, which are our programs. Uh, we have a workshop series. Uh, we have book studies. We have a great youth program called Project Comfort Um, So whichever way you choose to actually walk people through how they're going to gain the skills, the tools, the strategies, um, we have the different ways that you can do that. The workshops are most popular. Yeah, Um, go ahead. Yeah, and the last step is cultivating because you need to maintain that culture. Um, So we have a full training lane where we would train an organizational trainer um, to be on staff that's able to train those workshops, do those assessments. Um, and be there to do a care response after any type of crisis event, which happens all the time. Um, But as we know, crisis events are very black and white, check the box, legalistic, but the care response as we've just talked about goes on for years. So you need kind of someone to understand how am I going to care for this workforce after the death of an employee or after, the death of a, a family member of an employee or any other traumatic response, which happens all the time. Mm-hmm. So um, organizational trainers, peer leader trainers is a big one for colleges, um, especially high schools, um, and then facilitator training for our youth program, or uh, just a regular standard inspiring comfort certified trainer that you can actually go out and um, train your own programs and collect your own billing and um, go train it in your community.
0: I love how you've You've created these individualized products, you know, for organizations or people to go out and help in their community in different ways that you have learned uh, and the way you've kind of packaged it together. Um, it's more than packaging, but the way in which you've compiled it, and I think a very strategic and thoughtful uh, way. And um, Jen, your, your, your mission, your vision, your experience all backs up in, in, in the book uh, that you've so craftily and detailed, you know, oriented, kind of put together. Uh, I just think it is a really special um, kind of combination of of, things, tools that people need to learn. Um, And I'll I'll be vulnerable here on the the show. I I had something I'm I'm working hard on uh, and really value, but (laughs) need some more work on. And um, I just want to say, I appreciate what you stand for, who you are and like the vulnerability today that you brought to the show and just the candor of the conversation.
1: Oh, thank you, Brian. I mean, post-COVID world, we are all dealing with this. There's not one person that is listening to this that is not dealing with something. And the mental health epidemic is upon us. Uh, it's, it's not it's not a luxury, it is a necessity that we know how to care for each other now. And so um, I feel very passionate about helping to reduce suicide and and so many people struggling with anxiety and depression absolutely
0: uh, Jen uh, where where can people find you reach out to you get to get to uh, get to back and follow your message
1: yeah thank you uh, Inspiringcomfort.com is our website um, there's the product page there where you can find our products and books uh, you can email me at Jen J-E-N, at inspiringcomfort.com or find us on LinkedIn and Facebook
0: Thank you so much Jen this is such a treat
1: Thank you so much, Brian. So good to be with you.
0: If you enjoyed this episode as much as I did, I hope you leave a review on the platform of your choice and share it with a friend who you think would find it valuable. If you'd like to receive our written newsletter and thought leadership, head on over to bwmissions.com newsletter and subscribe. See you on the next show.